Lord, we thank you for your word. In the midst of our own weakness, we ask that you would be strong, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. In your name we pray, amen. So both of my personal examples today have to do with old bosses, with supervisors. And this guy, he was always the bad boss. It was at a trucking company, and he was the one that when we were on the loading dock or getting ready to take our uh, trucks out for delivery, was always on our case. He's the boss that didn't have a normal tone of voice. He only knew one tone, and it was yelling. Have you ever had somebody like that? Um, you always felt like you were being talked down to and degraded. And I came to really dislike this person. Later, I visited him as he had taken a position as a general manager at another freight company, and I couldn't believe what I found. He was a nice, normal guy. Completely normal, jovial, friendly. And what I learned, what I figured out is that at my former company, they had intentionally set up a good cop, bad cop, good boss, bad boss type of situation. So my expectations of this gentleman's character were completely misplaced because I didn't understand the context. This Advent, we're talking all about misplaced expectations as we encounter people in the scriptures looking for the Messiah but not understanding what they're looking for, having their expectations placed in any, anywhere but on Christ alone. Last week, Pastor Raleigh spoke about our desire that God would smite the evil from among us. We looked at the Malachi lesson and we, we, we remember that often we expect that we're okay. Our expectation is that we don't need God's judgment. Those other bad people do. And of course, we soon realize that we are also in danger of God's wrath and that the call to repent is issued to us. And I think that's an important mis-expectation to grab hold of because the idea in Jesus' day was that God would bring about vengeance on his enemies. And this is not without biblical evidence. Isaiah 61, chapter 2, or chapter 61, verse 2b, the second half of the verse, says that the Messiah will bring, bring about the day of vengeance for our God. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 20, is talking about the day of the Lord, and it says that the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. And these are just a few of the Old Testament prophecies that connect vengeance and judgment with the coming of the Messiah. And this theme runs directly through John the Baptist's teaching and preaching. The axe is already at the root of the tree, John will say. And 
he will say the Messiah is going to bring the wheat into the barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And John the Baptist did exactly as he was meant to do. He warned people of the, impe- excuse me, the impending judgment of God and the coming of the Messiah. And when Jesus showed up, he introduced the Lamb of God. But then, just as Jesus was beginning his ministry and beginning to proclaim freedom to the captives, what happens to John? He's locked up. Jesus, the Messiah that John has prepared the way for, is now proclaiming freedom as John sees nothing but a jail cell. He has been imprisoned by Herod, and you can imagine why he might be a little bit disillusioned, because he was hoping that the Messiah would bring God's vengeance upon Herod and upon their evil oppressors. And Jesus isn't doing that. He is not fulfilling that expectation, at least not yet. There will be a day when he returns in power and glory, judging the living and the dead. And on that day, in his second coming, there will be reason for those who have rejected him and continued stubbornly in their sin to faint in fear. But first, he comes to seek and to save the lost. Remember that quotation from Isaiah 61 just a moment ago? Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 as well. He quotes the beginning leading up to that point. 61 verses verses 1 and 2a. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops. Jesus, the Lord of the scriptures, not because he didn't know his Bible, he knew exactly what he was doing, stops at that point and he leaves off and the day of vengeance for our God. Instead of vengeance, Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. He teaches in the book of John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we will learn over the course of Jesus' life and ministry and suffering and death that he doesn't just gloss over God's vengeance. He takes it upon himself. He takes the vengeance of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a vengeance and an anger against sin that he himself as the Son of God shares and participates in, and he takes it all upon himself in his death on the cross. No more does humankind have to bear the wrath and the vengeance of God over the sins of humankind. Because of Jesus' first coming, there is life and salvation and forgiveness of sins for all who call on his name. Thus, at the second coming, those who face God's wrath are those who have rejected Jesus, those who have chosen to take God's wrath and God's vengeance on themselves. 
So the misplaced expectations are that God's wrath must be poured out on us, that God is angry at us, that God is, is inherently evil and mad at us, and that we must approach him not with fear, or excuse me, not as a good God who loves us and wants to save us, but with an, an unhealthy fear that all he wants to do is smite us. This is law without gospel. So secondly, as we talk about misplaced expectations, I'd like us to think about how we have misplaced expectations of the leaders that God places in our midst. We expect perfection from prophets and from other holy men and women of God. Instead, we get imperfect humans who are used mightily by God. When I was 14, one of my first shift managers at Burger King was the only manager in, in the store that was fun. It was actually fun to work when he was there. He was relaxed, he didn't really push you as hard, and it just made for an easy shift. So we always liked when this guy was working. Well, one day, I came in and I learned that he was gone. He was fired. And it turns out that beneath that veneer of niceness and, and being cool and friendly and easy to work with, he also had a habit of taking small amounts of cash from each person's register. So that at the end of the day, when he was responsible for counting the money in the registers, it appeared that all of us just couldn't do math and had mistakenly shorted the drawer a little bit over and over and over again. So there was a bit of a misplaced expectation that this person was a fantastic boss, that this person was truly someone good to work with, when in actuality, I was being implicated for missing cash, along with everyone else who worked at the store. In our gospel lesson today, we have a challenge in how we see and how the people see John the Baptist. So the people of Israel held the prophets of their heritage in high regard. Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, all of them very much revered. It was an inconvenient truth that they, the people of Israel, had actually persecuted and killed many of those very same prophets. Rather than thinking about their own treatment of the prophets, at this time they revered them, held them in high esteem. And if John the Baptist came like a new Elijah, like another prophet in this long heritage of prophets, he was to be revered. This is why Jesus asks them, what did you go out to see? Because they know that they went out to see someone who was strong and bold in his proclamation of God's word. And yet, John the Baptist is now publicly struggling with doubt. And no matter which way you cut it, this doesn't bode well 
for their understanding of John the Baptist. If Jesus is the Messiah, excuse me, if Jesus is the Messiah and John is doubting, then it looks poor on his own prophetic faith. If Jesus is not the Messiah, then John was wrong the whole time. What must people think when John has been put in prison? This is not the way it's supposed to turn out. And it causes us to ask, what leaders have disappointed us? What leaders have let us down? When is the first time that you realized someone you looked up to, perhaps a parent or a family member, perhaps a an elder or a youth director or a pastor, perhaps a teacher or someone in the workplace that you looked up to, when's the first time that you realized, that, oh, they also are human. They also are sinners. They also have flaws. See, we're very quick to put leaders on a pedestal and we're almost as quick then when we are disillusioned, when our expectations are not met, to bury them six feet under. And in the second half of the gospel lesson today, Jesus takes the time to restore the status and the honor of John as a prophet called by God and fulfilling the scripture. Yes, he is human. Yes, he has doubted the identity of the very person he, he was sent to proclaim and to prepare the way for. But Jesus reminds us that John the Baptist is fulfilling scripture and has done exactly what God called him to do. Despite the fact that he, like you and I, is both a saint and a sinner, Jesus affirms that he is the greatest of the prophets. But then he says something else that causes us to scratch our heads. He says, but the least of these in my kingdom are greater than he. What is Jesus talking about? He's corrected their disillusioned view of John the Baptist, but now he has something to say about them. The person who is the least of these in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And in order to understand this, we have to understand who is the least of these. And then how is Jesus speaking of John the Baptist? First, the least of these in the kingdom of God are ordinary believers, regular believers like you and I, people who have been born anew into the, God's kingdom. They have come to trust in the Messiah. The least of these is a category that encompasses everyone who comes into God's kingdom. There is no ranking of importance within this category. All are sinners saved by God's grace. Even John the Baptist, as someone who we trust and can safely assume did continue to put his trust in Jesus the Messiah, he, John the Baptist, is counted among this number. John the Baptist, in addition to his role as prophet, is also among the least of these. So what is Jesus talking about when he compares to John the Baptist? He's comparing to John's divine role, how God has appointed him into the role of being a prophet. He is saying that 
people of the new covenant, people who have the privilege of knowing Jesus, have a greater status even than a prophet. You see, being a prophet is an important calling, but being a child of God is the most important. One might say today that being an elder or a pastor or a youth ministry director or an organist or a praise team leader is important, and that would be a correct statement. But being a child of God is even more important. Amen? So often we think of ordinary Christians as having a lowly status, and in some ways this is true. We are called to be the least of these, to serve one another, to humble ourselves, and yet God lifts us up. God, like the generous father in the parable of the prodigal son, takes us back into his family, not as lowly servants, but as honored children, as inheritors of his promise. So we are called great in the kingdom of God, not because of our own merit, but because we belong to God in Christ Jesus. The one who loved us fiercely, created us for good, saved us for eternal life, has claimed us as his own. It is his forever family to which we belong. Now I just want to tie these together really quick. These three ways that we have misplaced expectations misplaced expectations in Jesus, in the leaders around us, and in ourselves. If we expect Jesus to be primarily a God of vengeance and wrath and judgment, and we don't know his mercy and his forgiveness, it's going to taint how we, with the expectations we place on others and on ourselves. We will expect our leaders to be a buffer between us and God, to mitigate God's anger and go between us and God and hopefully pacify him. And that is a place that our leaders cannot fill, whether in the civil realm or in the religious realm. And And we will want to be small because God is wrathful. We will want to be inconspicuous. But because God in Christ Jesus has shown us mercy, has taken the vengeance and the wrath of God upon himself and offers grace and mercy and forgiveness to all who believe, we can approach him with boldness. We can walk this journey of faith alongside our leaders, not expecting them to protect us from an angry God, but allowing them to be saints and sinners who, uh, because of God's call, not because of their perfection, walk alongside us in the faith, leading the way. And we can recognize that our status has been changed from poor, miserable sinner to saint, child of God, holy and perfect because of Christ. This is why on this Gaudet Sunday, we have joy, we have confidence, and we can eagerly await our Lord's return, knowing that he has saved us and prepares a place for us. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks. 
we are grateful that you have far exceeded our expectations, that you come when we expect judgment and you bring mercy. You come when we think that all hope is lost and instead you wash us clean in the waters of baptism and make us new. You come when we have lost faith in all of those around us and remind us that you are our only hope and our only future. And we look forward to that future even as we walk together today. In your name we pray. Amen.